Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Syria. These are all places conquered by the Mongols. So he had that attitude of tremendous loyalty to his people. Genghis Khan, even though he had this massive empire and massive wealth coming in, he didn't build the palaces and the pleasure domes that you would expect, right? He lived very humbly. He lived in a gurg. Many people have said, well, maybe if we find his burial, we're gonna find the wealth of this whole empire. Genghis Khan died in 1227, about 800 years ago. First, he killed off the elite. He realized the elite is absolutely worthless, whether it's the financial elite, the political elite, any of them. They have failed their society and therefore they do not deserve to live. He said every person must have the right to choose for themselves. Every person can choose. And if you try to force a person to change their religion, you should be killed. I don't know, that history is pretty sketchy. The Mongol civilization was perhaps the most important empire in world history. And well, for most of the people in the world, we sort of give it a bad name. We think of Mongols as barbarians, as people who are, were the destroyers of European civilizations, of, of Russia, of China, these people who just murdered and destroyed, raped and pillaged. But the thing is, if you actually look at their accomplishments, the Mongols had more territory than any other civilization, I believe, in history, including to today. They created a postal service. They created a lost and found for pets. They created paper money. The Mongols were amazing. And I have this thing where, I don't know if you saw this on the internet recently, there was this internet some historian said most men spend their time thinking about the Roman Empire, which got a lot of laughs on the internet. And, and the thing is, I spend a lot of time thinking about the Mongols. Uh, maybe that makes me weird. Maybe I should be, you know, thinking more about Julius Caesar, but Genghis Khan was epic. And, and you know what? I'm not the only person who thinks about the Mongols. In fact, I'm here today with Jack Weatherford, who's an anthropologist, a professor emeritus at Macalester College. He's the author of nine books, nine books uh, on subjects as diverse as the history of money, Indian tribes and in the United States, the commerce of uh, pornography, which we should probably get into. And, but most importantly for our talk today, three books on the Mongol civilization. And I, you know, I, I ride a lot of, um, I ride my bike a lot, like 3000 miles a year. And, and he had this book called Genghis Khan and the history of the modern world, the, the making of the modern world. And it was 18 hours and I just devoured it. It was so, so good. But my favorite part uh, you know, I, I've, I, I know a, a little bit about the history of the Mongols because I've listened to Dan Carlin. I've listened to uh, the Timur podcast. I've, 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 I dabbled in, in the Mongols. But the thing to me that was so amazing about his book was all of the years he spent in Mongolia, in areas that have been restricted for centuries. And I had to get him on the podcast. And you, 
Well, and I did. And you know where he is right now? He's in Cambodia. He retired and was like, you know, forget Florida. I'm going to live in Cambodia. <laughs> so the first question is, is, how did you end up, Jack? Jack, how did you end up in Cambodia? And uh, yeah, that's the first question. Well, I was out of Mongolia when uh, COVID started. And Mongolia was the first country in the world to close down. And they closed and... I thought, well, I'll go to Cambodia. It's a nice country, and it's probably going to be a long wait, maybe three months. Well, it was three years, and they were one of the last countries to open again. But uh, by the time COVID was over, I'd become a resident of Mongolia and a resident of Cambodia, both. I would love to get over there sometime. But so let us just set this up for to set this up for the the audience here. I'm going to read a passage. Uh, just a bit from your book that that sort of highlights some of the achievements of of the Mongols of Genghis Khan. In 25 years, the Mongol army subjugated more lands and people than the Romans had conquered in 400 years. Genghis Khan, together with his sons and grandsons, conquered the most densely populated civilizations of the 13th century. Whether measured by the total number of people defeated, the sum of the countries annexed, or by the total area occupied, Genghis Khan conquered more than twice as much as any other man in history. The hooves of the Mongol warriors' horses splashed in the waters of every river and lake from the Pacific Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. At its zenith, the empire covered between a million contiguous miles an area about the size of the African continent and considerably larger than North America, including the United States, Canada, Mexico, Central America, and the islands of the Caribbean combined. It stretched from the snowy tundra of Siberia to the hot plains of India, from the rice paddies of Vietnam to the wheat fields of Hungary and from Korea to the Balkans. The majority of the people today live in countries conquered by the Mongols. On the modern map, Genghis Khan's conquests included 30 countries with well over a billion people. The most astonishing aspect of this achievement is that the entire Mongol tribe under him numbered only around a million, smaller than the workforce of some modern corporations. From this million, he recruited his army, which comprised of no more than 100,000 warriors, a group that could comfortably fit into a larger sports stadium in the modern world. All right, why have we gotten the Mongols so wrong? I think there are many reasons for that, Scott. Part is uh, no one likes to be defeated and no one likes to honor the people who defeated them. But also the Mongols were very secretive about what they did. And they did not try to uh, impress the world with statues and art and books about themselves. They were just proud to do what they were doing. And as long as they knew themselves, that was enough. And so they, they did not leave behind a whole lot of propaganda that was very positive. Quite to the negative, much of the propaganda they left was, was deliberately negative because they wanted to often to frighten other people or to weaken their morale. So this image of the Mongols, they became an easy, easy scapegoat in history. You know, they had done something that was so much larger than everybody else. So they had to be torn down for having done it. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Because their accomplishments really, I mean, not only did they conquer, 
what you make a very good point of in your books is that they built a civilization, but they built it without the monuments that we associate with civilizations, right? They they were able to knit together, and I think this was the is the thing that is most misunderstood about the Mongols, is that they knit together disparate groups and got them to work together. I mean, either by force and fear or by actually really efficient um, means, right? He, he made a, he made a lost and found for pets. That's amazing. You know, this small number of people, like you mentioned there or in that reading of a million people in his nation, and he was conquering nations of hundreds of millions of people with an army of 100,000. You do not do that just by force. You do not do that just by fear. That can be one of your tactics and you certainly have to have a very good army. But he also knew to do exactly what you said. That was, he knew how to build up support from within the society. He would see what are, what are, what are the fracture points within that society and he would go after. It was very often religious points whether they were Muslims or Christians, or whether they were one kind of Christian or another, or one type of Muslim or another. And he would side with the minorities, those who were out of power. He would offer them the chance of freedom of religion, and they would join him. And then as soon as he had done all the conquest, he integrated them into a much larger economic system of trade in which he had built an elaborate system of a a caravan stations where people could get horses, where they could get supplies and they could move on. And most importantly, he protected all of it. So the routes were open and they were safe. That's why we have someone like Marco Polo. First of all, his father and uncle went to China once. They came back, they got him, they went twice under Mongol oh. protection. You think about it, could you do it today? Could any of us do it today? Go from Venice by land all the way to Beijing. It's rather down. No, I, there are, so, I mean, I do know a friend who biked from Paris to China. Uh, so I think it, 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 there are brief windows sometimes when all yeah. the countries and their visa programs and like the wars sort of like line up and you can do it, but you're right. I mean, it's not It's not only Mar Marco Polo, it's also Ibn Battuta who comes through yes. and, and it is it is remarkable how he knit together this world. And you you could, I believe, he also conquered Afghanistan, right? Like he he, he took Correct. over, and Very and quickly. I think he, he he might be the only person the who conquered the graveyard of empires. You think that yes. maybe we could learn something from what he did? You, well, you think about. Uh... If it, the we being America, you think about America's war in my lifetime, all the wars they've had in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria. These are all places conquered by the Mongols, every single one of them, plus China and Russia and all of the, all of the Middle East and all of Central Asia. It was absolutely phenomenal. But we don't learn from them. We don't even try. When we invaded Iraq and we attacked uh, Baghdad, we didn't look to see, okay, who has conquered Baghdad before? The Mongols, mm -hmm. very efficiently. And we mm -hmm. approached that in the opposite way that the Mongols did. And mm -hmm. consequently, the Mongols were able to rule for over 100 years. The United States got itself trapped inside the green zone in Baghdad, and uh, the country is still a mess. 
So yeah, it's, we could learn. We could learn. We could learn. Although I will point out there, um, the Mongols also started out with something called shock and similar to shock and awe, right? This is yes. what we did in, in yes. Iraq. Um, they followed it up with something which would be unpalatable to the, the modern world, right? I mean, yes. in the medieval world, I mean, they <clears throat> didn't only take over Baghdad, they leveled Baghdad. They yes. looted it. They, they destroyed it, which is something that admittedly would be pretty bad right now. I, I can't imagine the tweets when we did, if we did that. Um, and no, but, I, but I think we have to look at exactly what they did do. First of all, it was the Mongols themselves did not enter Baghdad. They let their Christian allies and other Muslim allies do it. And they were the ones who did the actual destruction. But it was under the Mongols. I do not deny it. However... They had a system. These were not barbarians. It was quite a well-thought-out system. And that is, they told the people very clearly in every case, if you surrender, you will be protected forever. We will protect you. You will not be harmed. Your taxes will stay the same, only now you pay them to us. And we will guarantee freedoms of religion. We'll guarantee other freedoms. People had the choice. And then if they did not, the Mongols attacked. And, and Baghdad, you did not. Baghdad was attacked. And you did not want to be attacked by the Mongols, right? right. The, right. The, the Mongols at that time, uh, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about them is they, they altered warfare entirely. In fact, there aren't, until the modern era, there aren't um, people who use that doctrine as effectively as the Mongols. You know, working from horses, using bows and arrows. Uh, and, you know, attacking their enemy from a distance, you're doing staged retreats to trick the enemy into following them into uh, territory which is uh, unfavorable to them. And remarkably, the Mongols barely took casualties in a lot of, in many of their engagements, uh, which was a very different philosophy from what you did in Europe, where you lined up two armies and you just smashed each other until, you know, one army had more people left and then that was the total victor. The Mongols were incredibly precious about the lives of their soldiers. And uh, and you don't really see that until, to some degree, the, the almost the special forces attacks that we do now uh, out of the United States. And this led me to, to want to think, not so much about their military uh, prowess, which you got to read his book because it's amazing and you'll get all of that, that military detail. But, but Genghis Khan was incredibly effective at accomplishing his goals in general. And there's a surprising consistency to what you could, I mean, you, you didn't write this in your book, but there's almost like this Mongol moral doctrine, like ways that Genghis mm -hmm. Khan thought about the world. And I wanted to see if you could maybe describe what the, ethical world is for a Mongol? Like, like if you were going to be a Mongol, how would you be a Mongol? Yeah. Well, he had a moral code that was very strict. And by and large, his moral code, unlike his military code, with which we might disagree greatly with our modern standards, but his moral code, I think, is one with which we would agree. And for example, he... He did not value inherited status. No matter who you were, it's what you could do that was very important. His family was not important. 
His family was kicked out uh, when his father died. His mother was kicked out with all of her children. They lived on the step as outcasts. And he developed this innate sense of what it is to be loyal to one another and to rely upon one another. And the elites do not fit that. So he was very much anti-elite, and he often, if they fought against him, he simply destroyed them, and otherwise he would tolerate them. So he had that attitude of tremendous loyalty to his people, and he lived exactly the way they did. He said, I eat the same food as my soldiers. I wear the same clothes as my soldiers. I sleep in the same tents as my soldiers. He led that life, and it never varied. And the faithfulness to him and him to them was absolutely incredible. That's why, as you say, he tried to protect life during war because he only had 100,000. They were like one huge family. And any loss of just one would be extreme. So he had that. But he also, first, before he went out conquering, people began to join him voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Several Turkic tribes, including the Uyghur people, joined him, asked to join him because he had better laws and more justice than the ones under which they were being ruled. So people were attracted to his fairness and to his code of law, which was that there is a, a law of heaven that all people must obey, but it's a very basic and general law. Their own law It's just fine. Everybody should live by the law of their own culture, as long as they also obey the basic morality of heaven. And part of that, one of the first rules was, of course, this uh, freedom of religion, because the Uyghurs came to him. They were Muslims, and they had a a very fundamentalist Buddhist uh, monarch at the time named Gutschluk, and uh, he was oppressing them and trying to destroy their religion. And they came to him, And what was so interesting, some rulers have given freedom to different religious groups, different religious cults or religious leaders or temples. But he said, that's not enough. Every person must have the right to choose for themselves. Every person can choose. And if you try to force a person to change their religion, you should be killed. And if you prevent a person from changing their religion, you should be killed. Was yeah, a, which was not very popular in the 1300s. Uh, you know, in the 13, oh. everywhere else, it was murder people uh, who yes. didn't like their religion. Yes, and this kind of freedom of the individual, not just of the religion, but the individual, it attracted a lot of people. But other things, that, in addition to this, in addition to the loyalty and, and meritocracy within his rule, was his openness to trade. The Mongols themselves did not produce anything. The Mongols were not innovative in those fields at all. So they depended upon trade. They didn't have farms. They didn't have craft workers of their own. And so they made a system, a transportation system and a protection system, and they lowered every kind of tax they possibly could on traders. And again, that's why the the Polos were able to go all the way from Venice with their goods and with their values and their, their jewels to China and then back again. So these kind of things, they attracted people. People Mm -hmm. realized the value of it. Also, it was just simply his firmness. He gave order to society and people were attracted to that. What he did... It's sort of like, you know, the 
getting into the Mongol Empire, if you didn't want to go, if you didn't want to join and he showed up at your gates, that was yes. a terrible place to be, right? I yes. mean, he, but after the Mongol Empire has absorbed you, it was a pretty sweet deal, especially for the 1300s. Yes. Um, and, and I think one of the things that was so, I mean, it's something that a modern world doesn't necessarily admit that it likes, but you know, he used fear and a commitment to total victory uh, in tandem with one another, right? The idea yes. that he could, um, you know, if you opposed him, you were not just defeated, you were destroyed. He'd go in there and it would not be good. He, everyone would be executed. I mean, he wouldn't torture people to death in the way, the way they did in Europe. But, you know, it was definitely not good for you. And this tactic ended up, you could say, it's a similar idea to what Oppenheimer did, right? What we did in World War II when we dropped the nuclear bomb on Japan. The, the philosophy behind that was you don't want more nuclear bombs to, to, to drop. Uh, in other parts of the world. So the fear of the nuclear bomb supposedly made peace. And I, I know that's sort of debatable. We can we could get into the ethics of nuclear sure. weapons at some other point. But but it, it is still that idea is that that the fear becomes a way to to expand the empire without actually having to kill a lot of people. He used fear, but there was never any doubt what he would do. His program was so organized that you know, I'd already mentioned if you surrendered, you got to keep your rights, except that you had to pay now taxes to the Mongols. But the Mongols did not even usually leave a governor or a, or a force behind. You were totally a part of the empire. You expected to be that way. However, if you resisted and he conquered, then once he did, first he killed off the elite he realized the elite is absolutely worthless, whether it's the financial elite, the political elite, any of them. They have failed their society, and therefore they do not deserve to live. He also usually killed the army because for the same reason, that they had been defeated. He certainly couldn't incorporate them into his army unless they joined voluntarily. But if they had fought him, uh, it's very rare that he allowed them in. But after that, he took every person who had a craft, every person who had a skill, and he saved them. If you could do, if you could weave carpets, if you could make pottery, if you could read and write or translate from one language to another, you could work leather, you could do any kind of skill, you were saved. So in the destruction, it's the fact that he destroyed the elite, I think, that horrifies people in history mm -hmm. so much. I mean, we don't mind destroying poor people throughout history, but we don't kill kings and princesses and princes and right. people like that. But yeah, he, that, he did. He did. That's, that's actually super interesting. One of the, uh, the criticisms of what we did in Iraq, for instance, is that um, we, uh, we came in there and uh, we, and I mean Americans for my non-American listeners, you're yes. on the, in the clear. Um, but we, destroyed a lot of the the institutions that were there and yes. then tried to rebuild them in our own image but we actually kept a lot of elites as well so the thing about the mongols that i think is so important about what you just said is that genghis khan even though he had this massive empire and massive wealth coming in uh to his to his you know 
fortune. He didn't build the palaces and the pleasure domes that you would expect, right? He lived very humbly. He lived in a gur, which, you know, most listeners probably think of as a yurt, right? He lived in these very mm. humble, almost nomadic uh, ways. And even when Kublai Khan, who is his son, I believe, Kublai is a son. Grandson, of, uh, grandson, grandson. grandson. Kublai Khan eventually takes over China and, and, and forms a dynasty that then rules in China for many, many years afterwards. And, and this part of your book was fascinating to me. He adopted externally the view, the, the, the uh, trappings of a, of a Chinese emperor with big palaces and all the things that you would think in an aristocracy. But inside the walls of the palace, he built a nomadic village and lived like his Mongolian ancestors. That was crazy to me that he really, you know, he was like, well, they want their aristocracy, but the aristocracy will make you weak. So we, we cannot do that. Yes. Yeah, Kublai Khan is another whole uh, dish, uh, another whole thing that is fascinating because the Mongols really did leave this legacy that lasted for uh, you know hundreds of years after the the sort of the the, the core uh, eventually um, disappeared right after the Mongol Empire fractured into into east and west and and south versions of itself uh, and. And how long did the Mongols actually continue to influence uh, the world? Well, I can say that the, the conquest of Genghis Khan started in about the year 1209. He had uh, united his whole country just a few years earlier in 1206. And then he began these conquests. Well, they, they, those conquests continued on for three generations through the time of Kublai Khan, as you mentioned. So those lasted for three generations. And then the empire that they created lasted until uh, about 1368, we can say, when the Yuan dynasty fell in China. And about the same time it fell in uh, Iran and in Persia, Iraq, that area. It lasted a little bit longer in some areas. So in Central Asia, some of the descendants uh, lingered on for a while. But I would say more or less 1368 is a good date from which to say the Mongol Empire, as an empire, was finished, although its influence had not finished. Right. Its influence has lasted for hundreds of years. And I think that you pointed out that the, the last Mongol descendant uh, only left in the 1920s. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, from uh, Bukhara. I was there just a few months ago, back in Bukhara in Uzbekistan, and he was uh, removed by the Soviet, uh, by the Russians in the 1920s. But uh, he was the last descendant. However, even uh, if to remember that India for so long was ruled by Mughals, and Mughal is just the Persian pronunciation of Mongol, and they claim Mongol descent, and they were descended from the Mongols, although not all in the male line. So they were not called Khans. Uh, they they uh, were called emperors or Shah or many other things, but the Mughals even. So they continued on as an influential, uh, a very influential force in Asia in particular for centuries. 
Absolutely. And I spent a, a great deal of time in India. I think I spent six years in India. And you can, some people still talk about their own Mongol connections. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the, they, they, obviously, they talk about the Mughals. But, the, but Genghis Khan still comes up quite a bit in <laughs> India, um, particularly in, the, in the, the sort of the Muslim uh, side. Of that, even though Genghis Khan, I'll point out, was not a Muslim. He no. was, uh, I guess you could call him um, a uh, shamanist, right? Maybe, like, maybe something similar to Bonpo, um, possibly out of which is a religion out of Tibet. But what was it? What was his faith personally? Yeah, we could say a shamanist or, or animist of believing in the in the power of the spirits around him. You know, I, I, uh, I was very interested in his spiritual development. He wasn't just one thing his whole life, but he started off worshiping the mountain where he, he and his mother and siblings lived. And that was a big force for him. And that was his guardian throughout his life. And that's why he wanted to, at the end of life, to be also taken back there to that holy mountain. So that was the main thing. But gradually, as you know, the Mongols were very interested in the spirits right there, whether it's of a mountain, a river, a rock, a tree. But as they got farther and farther from home, they did not know the spirits. They just didn't know who was this, who was this mountain, what was the name of the mountain, what's the spirit. What They didn't know anything about these places. So more and more, he began to rely upon the sky. Just the sky was everywhere. The sky was the same over Mongolia or Afghanistan or China or uh, any of these countries that he had conquered. And so he became a worshiper of the eternal blue sky. And he also, as he saw his own success develop, he began to feel this mission from the eternal blue sky to unite all people in the world. And I believe that he felt that very strongly, this connection to the eternal blue sky. But he did not take that as the decisive religion. He felt that all people had their own religions. As his grandson once said, the religions of Mankind are like the fingers of God, and which one should we cut off? You know, he felt that people should live by their rules, but he also said, you know, that most of the religions they had written scriptures, but they ignored them. Mm -hmm. They did not live by their scriptures. And he said, the Mongols do not have written scriptures. We have our stones, and we have our shamans, and we have our sky, but we obey them. Yeah. It's fascinating when, when I, when I'm listening to you speak about the Mongol faith, I'm, you know, I studied also in Tibet. I lived in Tibet for a little while and uh, uh, there's so many parallels between that, that shamanistic side and what Tibetan Buddhism ultimately came. I mean, um, uh, uh, Padmasambhava and Guru Rinpoche, who are very important Tibetan saints would do things like they would bury treasures and bury texts in the sky. Like the, 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 the philosophy would actually be encoded into the sky in a way that makes no sense to an American, right? It makes yes, no sense yeah. to a, in Western philosophy because you're like, you can't write something in the sky. And yet in that shamanistic um, view, knowledge can be moved in that way. And personally, I have a very hard time understanding how that works, but they will tell you that it absolutely does. Mm. And, and they call them um, nur, which is like a treasure, right? They have these, these things that are, that, are, um, that are very valuable and they are so esoteric, which leads me to one of the most enduring myths 
and, and legends of Genghis Khan is that when he died, this man who controlled the wealth of the earth, as far as, it, as far as everything, the most money of anyone, the most assets of anyone in the world, he, his body was taken back to his tribal homeland into, into the, the underneath those mountains that he worshiped as a child. And, and it became one of the most secretive and off limits places in the world. I'm going to read another passage from your book, which I loved, which sort of sums this up pretty well. After his death, his followers buried him anonymously in the soil of his homeland without a mausoleum, a temple, a pyramid, or so much as a tombstone to mark the place where he lay. According to Mongol belief, the body of the dead should be left in peace and did not need a monument because the soul was no longer there. It lived in the spirit banner, which was a thing that that, that they carried, like in front of their armies, the spirit made out of horsehair, amazing. You go into detail in your book. At burial, Genghis Khan disappeared silently back into the vast landscape of Mongolia from whence he came. For nearly 800 years, this area, the Il Korig, the great taboo deep in the heart of Asia remained closed. The Soviet rulers kept it securely guarded. Instead of calling it the Great Taboo or using it as one of the historic names that might hint at a connection to Genghis Khan, the Soviets called it by the bureaucratic designation of highly restricted area. Highly restricted area. Administratively, they separated it from the surrounding providence and placed it under the direct supervision of the separate government that in turn was tightly controlled from Moscow. The Soviets further sealed it off by surrounding millions of hectares around this highly restricted area in an equally large restricted area. To prevent travel within that area, the government built neither roads nor bridges during the communist era. The Soviets maintained a highly fortified MiG airbase and quite probably a storehouse of nuclear weapons between the restricted area and the Mongolian capital of Ulaanbaatar. A large Soviet tank base blocked the entrance to the Forbidden Zone, and the Russian military used the area for artillery practice and tank maneuvers. Which is absolutely crazy that a leader who died in the 1300s, not only was this area protected during the Mongols and his descendants, where they had actually soldiers who would keep people out of this, of this region, it was even once the Soviets came in and they did all their murders and they murdered all the, the, the monks who were eventually worshiping um, Genghis Khan's uh, uh, descendants and, and his artifacts, even they secured this area, which, which to me is, is quite fascinating because it's probably one of the most restricted places on the entire planet. And now there is this, this theory. Many people have said, well, maybe if we find his burial, we're going to find the wealth of this whole empire. It's going to be like the biggest treasure we've ever imagined because of course an emperor is going to have, you know, stacks of gold, like stacks of jade, stacks of pearls. And that's, that's where he was hoarding it, like some sort of dragon. But what I love about this, and you've actually been into this area and I want to ask you what that, what it was like to go there because, you know, the internet is full of videos being like, they finally found Genghis Khan's burial site and they look at some rocks and, and, and you think you're going to get something. But isn't it interestingly ironic that the most off limits place possibly on earth for the longest continuous time is just pristine wilderness? Yes, with uh, wolves, 
and with uh, other wildlife living there and with trees that have fallen. And uh, it's, a, it's a quite a mysterious world. And it's very interesting that, as you say, that even under the Soviets, they protected it. However, they, they had a different uh, motive, and that was Stalin wanted to find Genghis Khan. You know, he was very interested. For example, he found, it wasn't hard to find the, the body of Tamerlane, Timur Khan, in Uzbekistan. And he had him removed, and then he had his skull brought to uh, Moscow, and they studied it, and they recreated an image of his head, what he looked like. And he wanted to do the same with Genghis Khan. I cannot say why Stalin wanted this, but anyway, it's also interesting that, you know, Genghis Khan's real name was Temujin, which meant Iron Man, Temujin. And Stalin's name, of course, Stalin, meant Man of Steel. So it was a very interesting obsession he had with Genghis Khan. But the area survived. No one ever found him. There is nothing in the grave. I'm quite con of that. There's going to be nothing there. He was wrapped in felt. He had not accumulated wealth in his life. He was a nomad. He wasn't going to carry around tons of gold with him. He believed in the recirculation of wealth. There, and it, and so one of his sons said, where's it going to go? We give it away, but where's it going to go? It's going to come back. It's going to come back. So it was a circulation of wealth. And uh, I believe that he was buried with nothing because he said, let my body go, but let my nation live. And so this place, Ikhorich, Burhan Haldun is the mountain. It's uh, uh, some, sometimes uh, not considered really appropriate to talk too much about it. But uh, part of the, the issue is you should not mention the name of the mountain when you're too close to it or within sight of it. It's interesting you mention um, Stalin. Uh, I did another video, which is on YouTube somewhere. I'll, I'll put a link in the description. But it's um, the reason why Stalin uh, uh, got the skull of Timur, Tamerlane in the West, uh, was he wanted the spiritual power to some degree of these great conquerors because he saw a connection. You know, Timur's name also meant um, uh, iron. Yes, uh, and yes, yes. And there's this crazy conspiracy theory, and it's you know almost definitely not true. But uh, we will I'll, I'll just recount it very briefly. Is when Stalin went there to go collect the skull out of um, out of the, the oh, yes. Timur, Timur's mausoleum. It actually happened the 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 day before Operation Barbarossa by the Nazis to invade um, uh, sure. uh, Russia. And there was a curse on the tomb, supposedly, that which said, you know, he who violates this tomb will unleash, unleash a tyrant even greater than I. And, and you know, the archaeologists went in there, they, they raided the mm -hmm. tomb, they got the skull, they took photos with the skull. And you can see there are photos of, of the archaeologists with the skull in the hand. And then the next day, um, the Germans invaded. So maybe World War II got started by the curse of Tamerlane. I don't know. Probably not. But nonetheless, a good story should be repeated frequently. <laughs> yes. Well, history has its own sense of irony. And uh, at least the, the basic facts are true. I mean, they did dig them up and then the Germans invaded. Whether there was a curse or not and whether that caused it or not, we cannot say. But the basic facts are true. 
They never found Genghis Khan, however. And and but they 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 they, I think it was in nineteen. Uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, twenty thirteen or maybe it was twenty eleven. There, they did find a site that they thought might be his place. But it looks when I've looked at the the photos of it, it looks like it's just a pile of rocks. And I find that beautiful because as you know, you you've noted several times, Genghis Khan created an empire, but he was the sort of the emperor that you wanted to be the, at the head of the empire who wasn't overcome with a lust for money. He wasn't part of the billionaire class that we have now, the oligarchs who rule the world. He was a guy who was like, these other people want money. They're motivated by the money, but that's not the, that's not the thing. What we want is a, essentially, he would talk about the eternal blue sky, but he also, he wanted a civilization, right? He wanted people to work together in, I mean, I'm not going to say he's like a hippie and like wants all peace and harmony because he clearly didn't, but he did want something which unified the, the human race. And it's no shock that, that his burial area, even if it was guarded by his hundreds and hundreds of, of followers for, for 800 years in various ways, it's, it's, it's beautiful to me that it's just this giant wilderness area. What was it like for you uh, to be there? And is it is it still off limits? Is it still is it a place where people can go? Because the Mongolian government now is a very different thing than it was, um, you know, obviously in his time. Uh, it is still off limits. Uh, there were some expeditions after the uh, end of socialism. There was some. There was sort of a lack of order in the country, and people didn't know exactly what the rules were. And so a, a few expeditions came in searching for Genghis Khan, but as soon as the government found out what they were doing, they were kicked out. It was not allowed. And then the government slowly reimposed the orders. Even a few tourist companies tried to organize tours to go in or something, but uh, the, the government did not allow that. And so it is still protected to this day. And by protected, uh, it's not like a national park where you have all these walkways and signs about no skateboarding and no picnicking and all. No, there is nothing. No road is allowed. No tree can be chopped down. No animal can be killed. You cannot get drunk. You cannot say foul words. You cannot speak loudly. You cannot use the name of the place. I mean, there are so many rules about entering the, the great taboo, as it's called, Ichorch. There's so many rules about that, and they are still abided by today. In fact, over time, they've added more, because uh, over time, they also then uh, forbade the women to come. Uh, that, But that came, I think, more under Buddhism. And it's not uh, universally applied. Some women have been there in the past. And the government... They, they come in now by helicopter once or twice a year, the highest officials, in order to perform the certain ceremonies to honor him. It's a very quiet, very subdued affair, and it's uh, just Mongols, only Mongols. And, and, and But you have been in that area, right? Yes, I never asked to go. I never said I wanted to go. Uh, however, I was asked uh, at the beginning of this millennium. In fact, we were the first people of this millennium to go in. I uh, went in with a whole group of, uh, of Mongolian scholars and some students who went with us. 
And uh, I was extremely fortunate to be able to go there. One of the things that you did while you were there was to retrace the the footsteps of him, of, of Genghis Khan's uh, early life when he was yes. first, yeah. um, you know, when his family was fighting neighboring clans, uh, when his, I, I believe it was when his mother was kidnapped. Am I right? This You followed the, the, the path of her flight? Well, trying to locate the, the mother, but I think you're, you're thinking about the one when his wife Bertha was kidnapped, and then they fled off uh, to this mountain, the same mountain where he was eventually taken after his death, uh, to Burhan Haldun. So that was very important to try to f- figure out those events in his life. Of uh, it's such a thing as, for example, you have the story that's written down, but you need to go to that place. And then once you get there, you can start putting the pieces together. So in this case, the, the secret history tells us that Mother Kawakchen, who we don't know exactly who she is, but that she first, uh, she was sleeping and she felt the vibrations of the soldiers' uh, horses. And so when I went there, then I realized this is a reasonably soft and marshy land throughout most of the year. It had to be the the depths of winter, when the land was absolutely frozen, that she could have felt those vibrations. So you begin to piece it together by going there. And I think that's what's very important, that I was just, I came at a moment after the fall of socialism, at a moment when it was possible to do all these things and to take the documents with me and take other scholars at different times and also the local herders and just discuss them in those places. That's how I learned from the land itself and the people who were there. Well, that is, I think that you you raise a point that we have to touch on here, is that from the 1300s to, let's say, roughly the 1970s, what we knew about the Mongol Empire was very little actually, because unlike all of these other civilizations that, as you said, left their propaganda behind, their written um, words, you know, we knew something about the structure of how the Mongol Empire um, operated, because there were, of course, some uh, some uh, administrative documents here and there. But who Genghis Khan was, he wasn't even painted un- until, uh, I think it was 50 years after his death. And and then there's this this thing this this text that gets i guess you could say discovered or at least translated in like and i guess it was discovered in the 1920s and translated into german at first in the 1970s which has the coolest name of basically any ancient document which is called the secret history of the mongols how was this book discovered and translated and what does it mean to our understanding of mongol history well, if I could uh, go back to say what it is and then uh, get to the sure, sure. discovery. But, but the secret history of the Mongols, Chinggis Khan had not allowed anything to be written about him. He was very strict about that. However, as soon as he died, within two years, someone, and I think it was uh, uh, the judge of the of Mongol people, Chigi Hutuk, who had grown up in the gear of, of Chinggis Khan's mother, I think he was the one who he compiled different information and he put it together part of it is the early myths of how the ancestors uh, came to be and the clan history 
But then there's this very intimate view of Chinggis Khan himself in this document. And it was all recorded, but it was so intimate, even of conversations that he had in bed with his wife. These were very intimate. And the times that his mother fussed at him and he was very afraid of her, or the, about his being afraid of dogs, or when he cried because uh, his father died. This, this kind of information, it's not a glory. It's not about the conquest. There's very little in there about that. So this was written down, but it was kept as a family document, as they said, the secret history, just for use by the family itself. However, after the fall of the Mongols, the, the Ming Dynasty, they had copies of it. And they did make some copies, but... No one could read them because they were written with Chinese characters to symbolize Mongolian sounds. So you had to be able to read it in the Ming Dynasty version of pronunciation of Chinese characters, but you had to be able to hear it with a Mongolian ear of the 13th century. It made it a very unusual document. For the most part, it seemed to have been lost. And then in the 19th century, a, a Russian a religious leader who was uh, in China as an ambassador, as an envoy there, he discovered a copy of it because it had been used to help train translators because Mongol language had been so important even into the Ming. It had been used to help to train, to train the translators. So he got this sort of school copy of it. But again, it was very difficult to decipher because it's just like nonsense Chinese characters. Made no sense right. to anybody. It took a terribly long time. And uh, there's, the story goes on and on with the document because he sailed back to Europe, to Marseille, and then somehow the document disappeared again. It wasn't found for another generation. And it was in a hidden compartment in another professor's desk. The professor had apparently acquired this somehow without letting it be known. So anyway, eventually they began to work on it and they began to translate it. And so in English, it was published in the 1970s. Uh, it's also been published in Russian and German, uh, many languages now. But it had to be published also in Mongolian because it was not written. The copy that was found was in these Chinese characters. So it had to be rewritten into modern Mongolian. So the, the secret history is an extremely intimate document and it was how, kept secret we, for a good reason. How do we know? And so I've heard, you know, uh, Dan Carlin has this long, another long um, history of the Mongols that he talks about. And whenever he brings up the secret history, it's sort of like, I don't know, that history is pretty sketchy because as you say, there's like these intimate conversations with his wife and childhood and, uh, these details that would almost not be possible for someone to record after a person's death. So, and yet it's also one of the only looks into that time period. Uh, I mean, I think there's only a, another couple historians who are writing around the time of uh, of Genghis Khan's like, sort of activity. And usually they're outsiders who are getting like their families murdered by, by Mongols. How would you say reliable is that, is that history um, for us when we're trying to understand um, Khan? Or is it just like any other historical document? 
No, I feel that it's quite reliable because it is such an intimate, the, the most reliable parts are the intimate parts of growing up uh, inside the gear and what people are saying and who's afraid of whom. But uh, when there are, are there episodes that happen outside that have been verified by other chroniclers of the time, they always go inside. So that part seems to be fairly accurate. But there is information, so much about his childhood growing up that we have in no other source. And, mm-hmm. and very little of it is complimentary that he killed his half-brother. This is in no source in the world except that one. And then once you find out that he had done that, it helps to explain a lot of other relations and things that happened on and on. There's tremendous debate within there about the paternity of his son. This is not something that a royal family is going to let out, and it's not something that's just going to be made up for some novelistic approach. You know, the it was a deeply divisive issue within his family of who had fathered his eldest son. And uh, all of his other sons rejected the paternity of the eldest son. They called him a bastard. So to have all this recorded in a document, mm-hmm. it's extremely valuable. Sometimes it's almost like a, you had a tape recorder or video there uh, to hear the words that were being said. And uh, I believe very much in those. Now, there are additions to it. There are, ex- there are places where something was cut out that bothers me a lot. There are places where something was inserted. But you study the document long enough, you can see it. The conversation is going on and on and on, and suddenly there's a little paragraph that just doesn't quite match. Well, it was probably inserted later for some political purpose, and you can usually ferret out that purpose rather easily. So the basic document, I do think, had an extreme amount of truth in it. Now, it was still one person's view of what was happening and his own memory of what was said in the gear, and there could be some slight errors. But I think when he cried, he cried. When he was afraid of his mother, he was afraid of his mother. When she took out her breasts and waved them at him and uh, told him, do you remember these? I think those things happened. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's certainly as good as our ancient Greeks, you know, Heroditus, uh, Herodotus yeah. uh, is known for his errors <laughs> uh, as oh, yeah. well. And, it's, uh, and it is truly remarkable that we were able to find this secret text. And really, it only came out in the last hundred years um, yes. that we got it. And it adds so much power to our understanding of the Mongols, which makes me want to get back to sort of where we began here, where the Mongols are so unbelievably misunderstood. And I'm going to read a, another passage which I think is pretty important in your book, the tribe of Genghis Khan acquired a variety of names over the years. Tartar, Tartar, Mughal, Mogul, Moal, Mongol. And that was the name that always carried an odious curse. When the 19th century scientists wanted to to show the inferiority of Asian and American Indian populations, they classified them as mongoloid, When Russia could not keep up with the technology of the West or the military power of Imperial Japan, it was because the terrible Tartar yoke put on her by Genghis Khan. In due course, the Mongols became scapegoats for other nations uh, and their failures and shortcomings. 
When the American bombs and missiles drove the Taliban from power in Afghanistan, the Taliban soldiers equated the American invasion with that of the Mongols. It's always the Mongols' memory in the world is always of destruction. You are doing a lot in your book and your work. You know, it's not one book. You have three books now. You've done so much to help rescue the Mongol narrative uh, in the world today and to show how important and and forward thinking that empire actually was. And I want to thank you for that. And I also want to say, how do we, how can we reassess and what can we truly learn from the Mongols um, still? Oh, I think one of the most important lessons from Genghis Khan in particular is how to learn from our mistakes. I think all of us believe that we learn from our mistakes as we often repeat the same mistake over and over and over. Uh, you can certainly see that at every level in our society. Our country, United States, has been at war virtually every year of my life, and they have not won one war in my lifetime. They've not won a war since World War II. You think of all those countries. They do not learn. They do not learn from their own mistakes, and they make them again and again. They believe that they can bomb a countryside into submission. Well, you can bomb a city into submission, but you don't bomb the countryside into submission. But these are the kind of things that we do uh, in one country after another. We don't learn from our mistakes. Chinggis Khan learned from his mistakes. The first city he tried to besiege, he had never even seen a wall. He had never seen buildings before. And he came there and he didn't know what to do, but he looked around and he saw irrigation systems. He talked to people. He saw that they dug canals. So he decided to redirect the canals and the river against the city walls in order to destroy them. He did it. And his own levees broke and they flooded his camp. Well, he learned from that. He Oops. wasn't defeated. He came back and he figured out what they had done wrong. And he, first of all, he admitted it. After every battle, they would go through the things that were done incorrectly, very carefully. So he learned from his mistakes and then he corrected it. I think that's an important thing that we can learn today. Another thing though, is whether we agree with his mission and his sense of the world or not, he was trying to create a world empire that was going to be living in peace. That was his dream. And I believe that he held it very strongly. We try to impose democracy on the world and we kill the people in order to make them democratic. And it hasn't worked. We haven't installed democracy on any country in my lifetime. And I'm 77 years old. No, so we could learn from him, even simply the strategy of war, of how he fought. We should have learned from him. We did not. I think even today in the understanding of what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, there's much we could learn from having studied how Chinggis Khan conquered Kiev. Very, or, I'm sorry, that was uh, how his grandson conquered Kiev, how they conquered Kiev. I think this is very important to study these lessons of the past, whether for war or for peace. Also, I call it the making of the modern world because his ideas are so modern. If we listen to him, he forbade the selling of women. 
Absolutely, because his mother had been kidnapped, his his wife had been kidnapped. He outlawed the the kidnapping of women and the sale of women. He granted religious freedom. He outlawed any kind of harm to envoys, messengers, or ambassadors. Diplomatic immunity at a time when envoys were routinely killed. He had so many laws. And we all agree with those today. Yes, we believe in the emancipation of women. Yes, we believe in the in the right of ambassadors to have freedom in, from... Yes, we believe in religious freedom. The world does not practice it. There's not a day that goes by without people being killed in the name of religion. There's not a day that goes by that women are not bought and sold, even in our own country, in the name of just profit. All of these things we believe in but we violate. He believed in them and he made them active in his own lifetime. In his empire, he insisted that those things should be obeyed. We can learn from that. We can learn and, a lot from Shivas Khan. And he also said that the law applied to him as well. Yes. He was not above the law, which is a thing that rulers around yes. the world uh, yes. like to think of themselves as exceptions. Uh, yes. Jack, this has yeah. been such a great conversation with you. I, I just want to imagine you on a horse, riding through the plains of Mongolia, drinking. Uh, what's the name of the 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 the, the bloody milk? horse milk? Irek. But a lot of people say kumis. But in Mongolia, we say Irek. I want to see you. I want to envision you getting drunk on Irek, <laughs> and. And and living your best life because this is uh I'm, you you have a fan in me I'm gonna gonna listen to your books as they come out and uh, real real pleasure um, for for uh, to be able to speak with you and when uh you know you have three books on the Mongols out you have I, I guess I said nine books um, out in total and and the the. The breadth is truly stunning. I mean, I, I, I sort of wanted to at, to talk to you about, um, you know, you have a lot of experience in Native American tribes in North America, and there seem to be some connections between Native American tribes and Mongolian, at least structures. And I wanted to dig into that with you, but we will have to save that for um, some future uh, time. And uh, if anyone wants to find out more about you, it, other than your books, uh, where should they go to to discover you? I don't know that. Um, I I uh, you know I'm not important. It's the work that's important. I think you know somehow when authors start writing about themselves, it's like yeah, Chinggis Han and me or something. No, I am just I, I am his student and I try to study him. But as far as finding out about me, no, there's nothing important about me. It's just about him. Well, um, all of you listeners here, um, that's totally not true. You should read all of Jack Weatherford's books uh, and, uh, and at least to understand the spirit of the things that he has spent his life researching. Uh, so thank you uh, so much for listening in to this um, podcast and video cast. Uh, you know, like, subscribe, all those things that you're supposed to do, whatever. Uh, maybe don't. Just it, it, just look up at the eternal blue sky and realize that we're all one. Yes. From, uh, <laughs> May it be so. That's what the Mongolians say. 
your blessing may be so, Baltimore. From Pokey Bear LLC in Denver, Colorado, and Cambodia, uh, this was Scott Carney Investigates. Thanks so much.